Hey, Dave here. I just wanted to take a moment to reflect on some of the stuff that's been rattling around in my head since the following announcement was posted on Rob Torres's website. It's with deep regret that the Torres family must inform you that our beloved Rob passed away suddenly. We are deeply saddened by this tragic loss. We hope you will remember him, celebrate his life, and continue his vision. First, remember him? How could I not remember him? Every time I connected with Rob, we had wonderful exchanges that were an incredible fusion of laughter and mischief. There was the time that he came to visit and taught my boys how to properly flick towels to get them to snap like a whip against each other's butts. There was another time when we stopped on the way down to Moisture Festival in Seattle and took pictures of ourselves peeing in front of a field full of outhouses. And then there was the time when he came over and was determined to try every single one of the beers I'd been brewing before starting a cruise ship contract in Vancouver the very next day. And this says nothing about the joy I had watching him perform. Whatever the scenario, he leapt at the opportunity to experience life and infuse it with clown-like energy. Next, celebrate his life. Through this podcast and the efforts of the Busker Hall of Fame, we were able to capture a couple of episodes that featured Rob that are being re-released here. When I went back and re-listened to things, I realized that the quality of our offerings has improved a lot since these episodes were first released, but I chose to leave that original content as it was because it provides a snapshot of not only Rob, but also where the project was at the time when these episodes were created. Rob's impact on the world of street theater and the people he worked with was also recognized on April 1st, 2019, when the votes were tallied and the community inducted him into the Busker Hall of Fame. Clearly, the influence he had on our tribe left everyone feeling like his contributions deserved recognition. And finally, continue his vision. Well, the one thing I always noticed about Rob was that wherever he went, he left laughter in his path. I'm not sure if this is the same thing as his vision, but I would like to suggest that this is something that we can all strive to achieve as a way of paying tribute to this little bald clown who brought so much laughter to the world. And with that, let's get started with the short story episode that was originally released on June 15th, 2014. I'm gonna tell you a quick story. Street performers tell great stories. I remember seeing you sweat. Be they comic or tragic, they're always entertaining. Oh my god, what a good one. This is a Stories from the Pitch short. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a growing oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. Have funny, we'll travel. That could be the unofficial slogan for silent clown Rob Torres, and I've certainly seen him succeed where others didn't thanks to his ability to work without language. But just because something is funny in one part of the world doesn't necessarily mean it will be in another. Magic Brian sat down with Rob to ask about some of the most memorable pitch experiences when things didn't go exactly as planned and the funny that Rob found in the midst of it all. At times, it's a bit of a crapshoot, and some days you just don't know what you're going to get, which is why we're calling this episode results may vary okay rob torres we're sitting in the the lot of the big apple circus in my trailer in your trailer next to the opera house which is a bit surreal yeah that's it right there like <laughs> that's the wall of yeah, the opera house it, it's less than a yard away <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to share a story from the pitch well, you can tell more yeah, than one if you want. Let's go on. Uh, before we started the recording, we were chatting about performance in Dubai and the Middle East and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and my experience traveling around. I had a chance uh, one time to street perform in Turkey. 
in Istanbul. Hmm. I was staying over there for a few days and had some time to kill. And the streets were dead during the day. But come 11 o'clock at night, slowly people started coming out because it was so hot during the day. It was right. ridiculous. And by midnight, 1 o'clock, the streets were full of people. Shopping streets were open, and I was staying in an area called Taksim. And nothing but clothes shops and stuff to buy. You were passing through? I was just passing through, yeah. I was, I was I'm doing a lot of cruise ship touring okay. at that time. Yeah. And that's what put me in Istanbul for a few days mm -hmm. waiting on a ship. Right. It's like, well, I've got some props. Yeah. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. The streets are full of people. <laughs> 1 in the morning. Why not go out and do a show? <laughs> what the heck do I have to yeah. do? <laughs> you Might know? as well. So I went back to the hotel and grabbed my gear, put on my costume, and went out on the street. And I like to go out and play on the street in different places in the world to see who gets what. Uh -huh. And I'm pretty international because I don't talk and I have a mime act. But at the same time, there are places in the world that really don't get what I do. And that was one of them. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was a great night. It was a big like crash and burn night for the stuff that I had prepared. Went out, I gathered a crowd, and they just sat there looking at me like I was an alien. Like they yeah. had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Or what they, they'd never seen anything like it before. Kind of like your descriptions of people in Dubai who didn't know really how to react yeah, to their first time. Yeah, they're amazed, but they don't know how to respond. Exactly. To but these people, I don't think, were so amazed as... Confused? Confused, yeah. <laughs> 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 and... I suppose it was a good 10 minutes into the show, and I'm trying different stuff just to see making little improvs, and we never clicked on, like, I never clicked on their sense of humor. Yeah, they just start feeling as you're doing it, you're like, okay, it's this like, is yeah, not... This, I don't know where to go with yeah. these people, I have no clue, I was really lost. And then this really scrawny, gnarly-looking woman came in, kind of a ratty afro hair, Missing a couple teeth and really, really skinny, kind of like a heroin victim, but mm -hmm. not really, you know. Yeah. And she came through this crowd of guys, like bumping through, and and she had this great, funny, natural clown pose to her. And she said something. I have no idea what she said, but she came in and looked at me, and then she started kicking me in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, these guys started laughing, and. Hey, if it's working, yeah, why not? Keep I don't going know why this is funny. Don't know what she's saying, but this is great. <laughs> Maybe it's what she was saying was what it was. It could be, but I think it was the action of the kicking too. Because yeah. every time she kicked me, they just laughed. So we played the scene for a few minutes until it kind of went nowhere else, and then she went off. And well, that was my show. <laughs> <laughs> In the end, that's where I, I passed the hat. I can't top I can't this. Top that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was the show. Yeah. People came over, put little bits of money in my hat, and then there were two cops in the corner that kind of gave me the, mm. are you here doing this? And I just went, no, I'm done. Yeah, that was enough. <laughs> that was enough. I didn't really want to get busted on the street there and not make my gig. Yeah. But what a great experience. Yeah. You know, and so that's a part of the world that I don't really know, like for silent comedy, what works with them. That did. Yeah, <laughs> so getting kicked in the I, butt. I need a good partner. <laughs> yeah, you need, you need a crazy one to kick you in the ass. Yeah, yeah, nice. What was the one you were when we talked on the phone? You had a story about saving somebody. Ah, in Pompidou Center, in Paris. This is probably a decade ago. I was street performing on a weekend with a friend of mine who does chain escape, and. 
Pompidou Center. Have you ever been there? No. Pompidou Center, where the performances were happening at that time, is kind of a sloped pitch. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, like a 15, 20 degree angle downhill that goes to kind of a shopping mall. So you perform on this incline and people sit on the incline kind of like a, like a, in Central Park at the, the where, where people sit on the grass. Yeah. You know, that kind of feeling. And before the show, we set up, on the end of Pompidou Center, there's a little wall and then there's a pedestrian street that goes up. So we set up our props along the wall. And just kind of chatting about who goes first and like, okay, where are we going to work here? And there was three of us to set up a kind of afternoon of shows. Mm -hmm. So uh, we set up against the wall and right above us, right up the hill, came this bum. He starts peeing on the wall. Oh, no. And it starts coming down the hill towards our props. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really nothing because it's running in this little channel right next to the wall. All we had to do was move our props up like a couple inches and it just passes on by. But my friend Ben decides to go and go, hey, start speaking with him in French. Why you got to pee here? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and starts this kind of little fight. And it kind of ticked him off a little bit. And he took off, stumbled away. So Ben's in the middle of his show, gets chained up, and the guy decides to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it was great timing and yeah. karma, total well, he karma. Could have, if I knew, he's like, all right, I've seen these guys before. Even if he passed out and woke up and came back, total yeah. karma. <laughs> yeah. So he comes back into the show, <laughs> and now there's a full edge of people. He's uh -huh. chained up, about to do his finale, and in walks the bum <laughs> with his bottle of wine in his hand, and he uh. comes up, and he starts heckling him. <laughs> <laughs> Inside the show. Inside the show. <laughs> it's just him and Ben on stage, <laughs> whole bunch of people watching, and it was funny. Yeah. Like, I had to sit and watch it for a couple of minutes and go, okay, you got yourself into this one. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to get out? Let's see. And it was funny, the audience liked it, and then there was a point where it kind of went a bit too long. You know, one of those moments where the guy is kind of on a rant, but mm -hmm. he's really drunk, and he's going to stay on a rant for an hour. Yeah. And the funny kind of died from the scene. So that's when it became time to go, well, let's pitch in together. We're making an afternoon of shows. Mm -hmm. What can I do for the scene? Dun, dun, dun. So I snuck up behind the bum like I came tiptoeing into the scene. So your approach was not, how can we get rid of this guy and let Ben finish the show, but how, how can we, I contribute like, and make this... How do we make this a show? <laughs> right. But also how to get rid of him, yeah, yeah but sure. like, how do we make it... Instead of just walking out and just trying to talk to the guy, you're exactly. like, let's make it a it's performance. It's a performance yeah. of some sort. Yeah. The laughter had stopped. It was kind of getting tense, but not really like, this is awkward. And something else happened. In comes the clown tiptoeing from the corner of the public on the diagonal from behind, uh -huh. up behind the bum. So everybody's watching. And I just took the bottle out of his hand. <laughs> and he turned around and went, no! <laughs> and I just sat there and I put one little drop on the pavement. <laughs> no! And I kept stepping backwards, and he uh -huh. kept following me, and I put another little drop on the pavement, and he go, no! And I walked him out of the circle uh, that way. <laughs> and I just walked him down the street, yeah. across the street, to another <laughs> intersection. Did everyone keep watching you? They watched me till I left the, the yeah. scene, and back to the show so he could do his finale. Yeah. And I just walked him far enough away that he wouldn't make it back by the end of the show. Yeah, you know? he'd forget what direction Exactly. Moved him a couple blocks, I left the bottle of wine there. And off I went. That's great. Yeah. That's funny. There's a story from the pitch. There's a story. When this project first started, I cobbled things together the best I could, dealing with imperfect recordings and next to no experience. 
You'll likely be able to hear this in this next offering, which is actually a mashup of two different Skype calls that Robert Nelson the Butterfly Man had with Rob Torres that eventually got turned into episode 16 that we released on March 14, 2012. The audio jumps around a bit and the volume levels may not be entirely consistent, but what I tried to capture at the time and what I think resonates about this installment to this day is that there's a lot of love, laughter, and respect that is shared between these two legends from the street theater world. Generations apart, certainly, but two gifted entertainers who left a huge impact and shared a ton of laughter with their friends, colleagues, and especially their audiences. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated, uh, desecrated, functilated, demonicated, prevaricated, postulated to creating a living social history book about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. It matters not the job you've got. The greatest icons of the street performing world. As long as you do it well. Never been so excited in my whole life. Things that are made by plants will aid the test of time will tell. I knew I was going to get a little flack from each one of you. You cannot count or know the amount. I can do anything. Or the value of a man by the show displayed or the beauty made by the touch of the juggler's hand. Because no one really cares about me. I am the Butterfly Man and I thank you for your kind attention. When I first met Rob Torres at the Windsor Busker Fest many moons ago, I was struck by the impression that he knew a secret that I hadn't figured out yet. There seemed to be something lingering just beyond the current topic of conversation that suggested a knowledge that I wanted to tap into. I recognized this again when I watched him perform. As I edited this week's episode and learned about his background and listened to how he approaches things, some of the pieces started to fall into place, but there's still a lot that's mysterious about this little bald clown, as I'm sure you'll hear, along with so many stories from the pitch. And now, here's Robert. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage one of the most amazing acts I have ever seen. He's got talent. He's got looks. Please welcome a man who has none oh, wait, of these. Oh, he's not here. Oh, right, he's well, not here. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> please welcome Rod Torres. God, how you doing, Baldy? Long time, Baldy. Gosh, it has been a long time, hasn't it? You don't yeah, look much yeah. different. You do have a bit more hair on your head than I expected. I've just started vacation. I've been working, and it's time to have a break. You've had tremendous luck in not only busking circles, clown circles, whatever it is. I've watched you work with Hokum. I've watched you walk into situations and get total autonomy. Because of some, I don't know what you have with administrative people, but you somehow slither in there and under the wire figure out exactly what you want and get them to give it to you. You're a sneaky one, Rob Torres. I really don't know how it happened, honestly, that way. Well, you've had a bit of luck over the years. That's all I got to say. Yeah. For sure. I've had more than my share of luck. <laughs> yeah, you have. Including the L.A. County Fair. Man, I got to perform live on stage with this famous freaking street performer. You remember that show? Yeah, I do actually remember that show. It was a hell of a day. you got to understand, I'm sitting there filling in for the Chainsaw Juggler. You were tired from the start. You weren't looking 
forward to it, huffing and puffing. There was a really great moment where you were about to shove fire in my mouth and you didn't know if I could fire eat. And you were being butterfly, but at one moment you turned and you had this great look in your eyes like you really cared whether or not I could eat fire. You can kill somebody very easily if they don't know what they're doing with fire eating. If they breathe in, they asphyxiate, their lungs collapse. And I didn't particularly want to kill a clown in front of the audience. I don't know. I appreciated that. (laughs) Was it your life? I cared about as much as I didn't want to go to jail. (laughs) Yeah, you could have died right then if I could have gotten away with it. (laughs) I love you, Baldy. I do. Let's talk about Rob Torres, how he started, what he saw at the beginning, what inspired you to get into this busking thing. It had to be your start, right? No. Busking was third. Really? Yeah. I did theater first and did stuff with Sesame Street. And then I went and did the circus for three years on tour. Would that be the Big Apple? No, it was Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers. Oh, my God. Yeah, I did a tent show for three years. We toured around and did, like, in the mud every day, changing around. It was so much fun. It was boot camp for clowning. If you want to learn something, try it there. If it works, it works. Did you have clown training? Well, I went to clown college. But that was Ringling. Ringling's Clown College. For me, it was a three-month taste of the style of Ringling Clown, Mm. the style that they choose that they need for their show, and it's a training ground for them. Along the way, there's a couple of interesting classes that, like, here's a little bit extra. It was a big circus school for three months, so I learned a bit of wire walking, stilt walking, trapeze, things like that. Okay, you get your tent experience, you get a little bit of theater training as a young man. I'm guessing in the early 80s, you make your foray into the world? Yeah, it was 82, 83, somewhere in there. Who was your first busker? What did you see? I guess New York. The first busker that I saw. No, it was in Key West. Hmm. I didn't know the busking scene in New York so much at that time. I was doing other things. Right. So I think my first was in Key West. I'm assuming it's Mallory Square. It was Mallory, yeah, before they redesigned it. It was 93. Whoa, that's pretty late. Oh, totally. What I just came into and what I know from meeting people and watching stuff now is it was the end of an era a beautiful era too who was it that did it for you i think it was the overall experience i don't think any one of them actually did it for me it was them it was their character maybe it's a joke that'd been done before but they were married to it in such a way that it was natural right i think circus was the first magic to me of a place like an empty space that can build this world in one day come in and make this big show and take off. And when you look two days later, it's gone. If you didn't catch it, you missed out. So you saw the magic there. And something about that atmosphere said to Rob Torres, I can do this. I can make it happen in my own way. Because you definitely were original in your approach to it. I don't think I had the same perspective. I didn't come into it the same way. Right. I looked at the street and I found it a great place to workshop and play. Right. Like there were some really radical and wild things that happened on the street. And then people, I think, were becoming more PC and more cautious you know, as the 90s grew. So it was still a great place to experiment with stuff because if you could just grab a crowd and do an act... Why not? It's the quickest place to learn and make acts. It might have been PC, but you are not PC. You pretend that you are. 
I have a routine for crying babies with Winnie the Pooh. It starts out, I make a baby cry. Like I intentionally make noises that'll make a baby cry. But nobody really knows that I'm doing that. And so when that happens, here's this chaos. And I make a balloon because everybody thinks, oh, he's so sweet. He's making a balloon. And I pop it in the baby's face so the baby cries more. And then I grab a teddy bear and its head falls off. By this point, if the baby is not crying but the face is looking like I'm panicked, it's really a funny situation. It's so wrong. but It's It's totally wrong. It's just wonderful. The first time I saw you perform, I said, you know, I've seen this crap before. And then... You just drew me in and twisted it and then punched me right in the face with your... I don't know, it it was so subtle. I'd never seen anybody subtly suggest that they were such an evil person underneath this clown persona. It was wonderful. Well, good. I mean, it's... uh, I don't know, it's me. It's definitely (laughs) you. I'm the evil person underneath my fine... Happy interior and exterior. <laughs> oh, you're a tor- Everybody has a dark side. Come you're on. a tortured individual, my friend. You're tortured. <laughs> Let me ask you, where was your first show? My first street show. Yeah. It was in, uh, what, 2001, two. I was in Central Park just trying a whole bunch of stuff to see what would work to gather a crowd because I didn't understand that yet. Mm. And yeah, it was really ridiculous. It was fun. Like I would figure stuff out and people would just walk by and go, nah, we're not going to stop this. We're not going to look at this. When I started getting really interested in working, I found really cute places to make shows in the park. There was a time when the cops started coming into Central Park and stopping people from doing shows. So I could do a show on a bunch of benches with a an amplifier built into a suitcase with a remote on it. Mm. And when I saw a cop coming over the hill, turn the music off and read a paper, and everyone was in on the joke. Everyone got it. Uh-huh. And we all played this game, and it was such a fun... Like, we were all kids. It wasn't a show. It mm. stopped. But we didn't stop. Like, we all stayed there, being naughty. And it was that kind of stuff that I found fun to play with in different places, and that became a show. It had a completion, and I found it really interesting to find different places to work and different things from different places, not normal places where you could pound out shows. I loved to play behind Central Park Zoo. Everybody was fighting for the big pitch at the fountain, lining up. If you got a show, you got a show in. Everybody worked well together at that time, but you couldn't work a lot. And I could go over and make Park Bench Theater for 50 people. And I could do a 40-minute show, and people would pay really well because it felt like a little theater show. And I'd rather have 40 people who pay 10 bucks a piece than 200 people who pay a dollar a piece. I can't do the math real quick, but uh, I'd agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) After your stint in Central Park, where did you go? What did you do? After Central Park, I went down to Orlando for a little bit. I worked Church Street Station. And then I worked at Disney for a little while, just kind of figuring out, gathering a crowd and building a structure to a show. So they uh, actually hired you at Disney World? Yeah, I fooled them. That's like joining the army, I hear. Oh, it's boot camp. But, you know, in two months of doing it, you learn how to do a show. Absolutely. Because you're putting it out there every day, all day. You have to. It's not a lazy kind of, ah, should I go work today or not? Because you can do the same on the street. But because of the nature of having a contract, I had to do five shows a day right and they're 20 minute shows and it didn't matter if they failed they didn't care about that gather a crowd and that's good enough so it was a trial period and in the trial period i figured out how to make a show work what did you do after disney 
after Disney, I went up to Kingston. Kingston was my first festival in Canada because I had booked Halifax and wanted to understand the Canadian crowd and also kind of what works for having because I had heard Halifax was a big festival and I thought well maybe it'd be good to try a festival for a few days and understand before I get there so that I don't waste a few days at a good festival. It was the summer of 2002 when I did Kingston and Halifax. Who'd you run into in Kingston, and what did you see in Halifax? Kingston was an interesting year that year. It was the very first street-performing festival I had gone to, but somehow the lineup that year, Carl Salader was up there. That's how I met you. Mm. And Phil and Colin from The Silly People were up there. Yep. And Jeff... Um, Collins? Collins, thank you. He was there. And this little kid, Cody... You remember Cody? He was a little blonde-haired boy. God, he, I remember that kid. I saw that kid. Yeah. He rode a unicycle, and I thought, you're a really cute kid, and you have a really cute act, and in about five years, you need to learn how to perform. Yeah, he was a fetus when I first met him. Yeah. <laughs> but he was out there. I was like, bless him. Give me some information about this that prepared you for Halifax, the big boy. So the festival, on Saturday night, on the street, ran shows really circle to circle up King Street, and it was about six or seven shows running. And it was because that right lineup of performers happened to be there. People respected each other. They knew that there was enough people on the street to make shows, and here's what it took to make a show in that space without really disrupting the other show. So you're saying that you learned how to work with a whole bunch of acts in one space and that in a very small space right. because to do a show back to back and not disrupt the other show and what's going on unless you decide to play together uh, right right or it kind of happens naturally but like not to have battles with music and other shit just to make it work because it can, because that's what people go out for. Did you see the same thing happening up in Halifax when you got there? It was a program in a different way, and it was spread out differently in space, so it wasn't the same kind of environment. Right, it was the whole waterfront area, and it, you gave specific times, day and night, to perform. Yeah, it was three shows a day, I think, and ten days in different pitches. Halifax changed over the years. You know, when I first started, it was a 17-day festival. And okay. by the time you got into it, I was already blacklisted. <laughs> What'd you get blacklisted for? I didn't particularly like the way beer was being sold by the powers that be to the buskers for a dollar can. When I knew, because I had talked to the head of the beer company... La Bat. Yeah. That they had donated the beer to the buskers. So I felt it was inappropriate to charge the buskers for something that you got for free anyway. And that was the intention. It was a gift for the buskers. Yes, I felt it was, but apparently the administration didn't. So uh, Andrew Elliott and I went down to a local beer mart and I bought, I don't know, I think it was something like 10 cases of really good beer and we hustled it back to the dormitory that we were living in and I borrowed an amount of refrigerators to get it all cold and I went up and I would stand in front of the green room a very small green room where they supplied the beer 
Uh, and before anybody went in to get a beer, I'd go, hey, you want a beer? And I'd say, here. And I'd give them one, you know, a nice, cold, frosty ale. Of course, nobody was buying the beer. But my greatest moment was when a guy named Hendrickson, who ran the sound, walked up. And the lady who was running the festival, Kim, yeah. uh, had a thing for him at that particular time. She was still Kim Kelly. She became Kim Hendrickson later. Mind you, while I'm handing out these beers, I'm drinking. <laughs> so uh, I'm pretty <laughs> plastered by this time. I do see the look of shock and awe on her face. This guy walks up and he I saw him, the glimmer of recognition in his eye. And I said, oh, I'm very pleased to meet you. You want a beer? And handing him the beer in front of her, it was just so cathartic. <laughs> you know? I'm dying inside with laughter. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just dying. And it was just a moment that I'll treasure and take with me to my grave. How beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, and and I might have crossed the line. So what? Yeah, it didn't matter to me. What uh, a good game. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your experience in Halifax. Halifax was fun. Like, it was kind of just a bigger, wilder, chaotic festival for me because it was a larger lineup. So I just wanted to see shows and kind of see how they put together the festival. Right. And then do shows. So in the end, there wasn't... I don't know. It, it went by in a blur. It was very corporate. I don't know. Like, I didn't like it. I put clauses in contracts about corporate work. So to do corporate extras, I didn't have to deal with it. Oh, but, nice. But corporate stages I found a bit appalling. Right. You know, like, great, you have sponsors, but I didn't agree to be in front of the Pepsi stage with a backdrop like that. Put a sign on the corner. This is the Pepsi stage. Right. That's good enough. Pepsi's right. our sponsor. Thank you. So I've pretty much got in my head you starting out in New York, Central Park, going down to Mallory, checking it all out, uh, heading up to Kingston to prepare yourself for Halifax, going into Halifax, and then what did it just explode for you on the international scene with the festival circuit or what? You know what I think it was? I think it was Kingston more than Halifax, man. Mm. Because I made friends with Phil and Colin, the silly people, and Phil invited me to perform at his wedding. Really? That's where Carl and I became friends. You were talking about taxi tricks. Taxi tricks. Right. So he had like all these performers who came to the wedding and they all wanted to perform. And Phil said, I have a surprise for you. So I had not met any of these people yet. And I performed there. So I got to know some of the performers on the circuit then. But because Phil and I met and became friends and did the wedding, he invited me up to do a variety show in November. He'd fill the house for a variety show, but he'd never make money. And it was a basic weekend. Just come up and hang out. It's a good time. And I've worked with a few people like this along the way. And I say, why not? Why not do that? You know, because it's a good time. It's fun. So you must have developed some strong relationship with Taxi, with Carl. But I was initially attracted to this guy from his writing. To Carl. Yeah, I thought he was yeah. one of the most amazing, prolific writers of poetry. Gosh, I remember something happening about pigs. He wrote over a hundred different poems, sometimes more than one or two a day, about 
pigs. Everything had a flying pig in it in different scenarios. I saw it on PNET, you know, Jim of the Jim Show's site. Yeah, That's yeah. where we all got together in the early days before Facebook. And Carl Salater, Taxi Trick's name came up so many times. I made a point that if I was going to be in the area, I'm going to go up and see this guy. Uh, and uh, I guess yeah. you were the guy that took me up there. Carl was another creative soul. That's what I found when I met Carl. Like, I've connected with creative souls along the way. Mm. And he has the show that he does, but he's a creative soul. Right. He sculpts, he writes poems. Right. He'll paint a little bit, he'll try this. He doesn't have to be great at it, but he's creative. He he generates something. Uh, most definitely. And he seemed to have just a gregarious type of feeling about himself, or he, he worked really well with people. He was just full of love. He yeah. always is. Carl is just full of love. And he became a hub. That church became a hub for a performance. Totally. Yeah. What a great place to meet. Because it brought New England, the northern New England, Bostonians and people up in that sector, Jim, down, and people from New York up. Right. And it was a great place to connect for those two crossovers. No question about it. The times I spent at his place in his dusty old basement with all those books around me. Oh, yeah. And filthy laundry, I might add, and a shower that was just disgusting. But I did enjoy myself immensely. <laughs> you took showers there? I did. I just stank. Uh, well, I was the only one. So uh, you must have started going international somewhere in the mid-2000s? I think what happened, I did this wedding with Phil, and then he invited me up for the variety show, which happened as Confab happened in Canada. Mm. So Shelley saw me for the first time. Al Kreiser saw me for the first time. Okay, the people okay. from Waterloo saw me for the first gotcha, time, whoever happened gotcha. to be in charge that year. And so people just saw that 15-minute spot I did in their variety show and said, we want you for our festival. Gotcha. And that allowed Canada to happen, and I got to meet people along the way. I had gone to Singapore before with the people from Halifax. Right. No. What was that guy's name? Jimmy Wong, right? Jimmy Wong, yeah. Right. Jimmy Wong booked it. And the first character I did there was a guy named Mr. Brown. It was a totally different character than what I was doing, but some some tricks and some of the same material. Like, I kind of knew what the show would be, but I didn't find the character yet. So you're telling me that what I saw, you didn't do down there, or...? No, not for the Busker Festival. Oh. Yeah, no, I did a different character for the Busker Festival. It was a bit of a heavy set guy with a mustache and big glasses. Really? And a shopping trolley. Well, you've got more in your little bag of tricks than I thought. I thought... You pretty much had that one thing that you did because you do it so well. No, man, I'm a creative soul. I like other things, but I do that because it's commercial and it really does work in a lot of settings. And I built it for that. Yes. So that it would generate money for me to do other things because some things don't generate money. So it's primarily a theater performance, though, isn't it? Well, I started working to build acts specifically for variety shows and for circus. And as I started doing that, I thought some of these things would really tie well together to make a really nice clown theater show hmm. and to tour it. And building a clown theater show, I needed a theater. Right. I ended up on cruise ships for four years touring the world. Well, that was when you were dating the Rockette, right? Um, that was after I was dating the Rockette. Like, oh. we split up and I went to Brazil, which is a really good place for a breakup. Whew, you're telling me. Oh, man, it was great. And I really liked the people. I really liked their energy and their style, and it was fun. 
Right. I had framed out a show in my mind that I wanted to do in a theater. I put it on the street in a basic way with no technical capabilities, just to block things like I would in a workshop with an audience. So you jumped off the ship and just did some street? The contract started this way. Like I booked a contract. They booked me for a ship to tour around Brazil for three months. And I did a good show the first week and they got reports and they decided they wanted to put me on the second ship. So they'd fly me off the ship and put me in some place for three nights. So if I'm there for three nights every couple of days, why not? Absolutely. You know, like it, get to know the people and have fun. With no question about it. Interestingly enough, the mayor's son of Rio was a big street busker fan. Okay. Yeah, he tried to do a little fire eating and stuff like that. And he had a few of us come down there under contract to work. Nothing ever really worked out because he was a dunderhead. But his love of busking and the Brazilian people themselves, it, it's just an outstandingly beautiful part of the world. Uh, unquestionably, the, the women, uh, I guess oh. they're the most beautiful on the planet. There's... I don't for, know. for me too, that they there's something simple that they, they have a sex appeal inside of them, right? That other Latino women don't have the same way. Though Latinos, I think, have the most sex appeal. I don't know. Asians do too. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, Asians are mysterious that way. Come on. I mean, they really I, are, I, man. Yeah, I don't know if this podcast is supposed to go in that direction. I, I think don't know. it's All about of them busking. Really, no. Okay, Anglo-Saxons are not sexy, but besides the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> okay, so you did this, some international touring with cruise ships, and you yeah. got to experience different cultures along the way. How long did that last? I don't know, because it was mixed with all sorts of other stuff. I did festivals along the way and mm. other gigs that I wouldn't normally do. Because I had a solid place to generate the income from. Right. To really take the dive into trying stuff and having fun. I don't remember the exact year that I saw you perform, but it seemed like such a powerful show that you had to have had that thing worked out. It was so polished that you could jump in and out of it, you know? I saw you perform with Hokum one time. And I was just saying, gosh, you know, what a what a wonderful compliment you two were to each other, you know? Oh, that was a great discovery. It's just kind of shocking, isn't it, sometimes to find out that you can work with somebody else? I think people can really, like, if they're really open, people of all different styles can work with each other without problems. Mm -hmm. And he and I just blended well together. There was no ego in it. It was just, let's go play and have fun was definitely a nice compliment from the beginning. And we made a really magical show in Edmonton the year that they went away from the downtown square. Right. Because they were rebuilding Sir Winston Churchill. Right. And we went over to the fringe grounds. Right. That's actually where I saw you. Ah, okay. So maybe you saw the magic show. <laughs> Do you ever remember an audience member's standout? Be magical? Yeah. Yeah. I've had a few. A couple of kids and an old man once. I was working on a cruise ship a few years ago, and I asked this old guy to take a picture of me, and I gave him the camera, and he said no. So I started this little uh, kind of faux argument with him in gibberish, and he just said no. <laughs> and it was a great little I don't know, moment of tension. And he picked up his cane and put it in my chest like a sword. Mm. So he initiated a story, and I loved it. I went, ah, oh, okay, and I walked off stage and came back on with a broom and unscrewed the end of the broom, and we got in a sword fight. 
And he stood up and he sword fought with me. In the end, he killed me and I died on stage. When he sat down, he had this look of amazement in his eyes because he was standing without his cane. And it kind of brought back that reality of the power of playing. That was, a, for an older person stand out, that was a pretty magical moment. Yeah, I find it interesting myself that age has nothing to do with a person just being able to grab the magic. Sure, it's cute to look at a kid do something out there, but old people, uh, I think maybe the walls go down a little bit sometimes when you get into a one-on-one with them. I remember this one gentleman, he said something to me, and I just berated him mercilessly because of his age. And I just kept going on and on throughout the performance talking about how this might be the last thing he ever sees. And, uh, you know, it, it got a little bit, I mean, maybe it wasn't all that distasteful, but I harped on it over and over again, right? Because I didn't really know where else to go. But he stayed with there. And the energy I was getting from him was good. But I, the, the really good part where he nailed me, I mean, he just nailed me. I do that little rose balance on the end, you know, where I balance the rose on my nose and I say the poem. Mm -hmm. And uh, right as I finish, just before I can even go, I'm the butterfly man, I thank you for your kind attention. He whips out what looked like the biggest handkerchief I've ever seen in my life. And he starts dabbing his eyes mockingly going, oh, that was so beautiful. You know, I just, just, I didn't know what to say. I just looked at that guy. Oh, God, you got me in here. I'm supposed to turn this in the hat and you, oh, you know, he got me good. He got me really good. What a great play. Yeah, that's the whole thing about not having a script you have to follow, but leaving that openness in your audience to play with you. How about losing it during a show? I was in Belgium once. I was invited over for this International Street Performers Festival, which turned out to be a street fair that this guy wanted performers at. So it was a really weird gig. And the whole weekend, there were a bunch of us fighting to at least get a show off. And I got one group of people together. They stopped. They were watching. Everything was going right. But there was no response. Absolutely nothing. No reaction at all. And that's really weird. It was as if I wasn't there or they were watching television. And I did this one trick. I tie a necktie with one hand. And there was no reaction on that. And that's generally one that at least people give a little surprised look at. (laughs) So I just stopped and said, really? Do you see that every day? You people don't react to anything. What the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) Wow. And went on this little tirade for a minute, and they started laughing at it. And it was a really bizarre little moment. (laughs) And I ended up back doing a little bit of show and finished and had it. And this guy came up to me later and said, "Uh, we liked the show, but we didn't understand the point where we became the antagonist. Right. Um, We missed the connection in the transition, of, and they really took it way too seriously. Always an audience member is going to come up with it. You know, I really like that part of the show, but why did you have to kill that kid? Well, you know, it just happened. It's not normally a part of the show, lady. Uh, It's amazing that people actually believe that you have planned. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Some conviction to it. 
the show is a show. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I've got to some dark moments in shows that I really wanted to. I really wanted to one time get the audience to turn on me so much that I went and hung myself and really end the piece in this dark, morbid moment. Let them think about it. And I don't know why it inspired me, but it was such a lovely end. <laughs> there was booing, there was hissing, and then there was silence. <laughs> well, they don't boo if they like you. You get that silence, that nothing, that zero zilch when they really don't like you. That particular piece, I went out, got them to like me, then turned. I started doing stuff that they started really not liking. <laughs> <laughs> To the point where they were heckling me, mm, mm. and I let it really affect me, and then I just went and I climbed up a ladder and hung myself into a blackout, all the way to booing and heckling, and yeah, go ahead, do it, to silence. Ooh, oh, that's effective. It was a really, really cool moment. I like that. I wanted to do it in Key West. I wanted to do a piece on the death of street performing Ooh. and do a public hanging climb a ladder on the new archway in Mallory Square and do a big speech about art and performance and censorship and killing it by this and that and then just jump and hang myself. Yeah, it sounds like you get some strong feelings in that area. Oh, yeah. What do you feel about the art form? Do you think it's really dying? No, I think cities are killing it. I think to a certain extent, performers are just by the nature of continuing to make pitches work just in a survival sense without the consciousness of generating and educating an audience to come back and build that place. And it becomes a fight, at least in certain spaces in the world. It becomes just a fight. And now it's one bigger than the next. If they have really good character and the show is really good and the quality is really good, okay. But if it's not, then it's, I don't know, there's something being lost. I've heard this a lot from a lot of individuals that pitches are a little bit more competitive and they're competitive for economic reasons more than anything else. And uh, they get overcrowded and this, that, and the other. But aren't new places opening up? One of the best shows I ever saw worked on the subway. I think it was the Q between Queensboro Plaza and 59th Street, which is a five-minute ride without stops. And this guy came out in the afternoon with an old baby carriage, and the subway was just full enough of people that everybody was sitting down. Mm. And when the doors closed, he pulled out a dove pan and a metal rod, and he just went clang, 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 About 10 seconds, and it was just long enough to piss people off. And people looked up with that face like, what the fuck are you doing? And in that second, he covered that lid and pulled out a dove. And people just went, huh? And for the next three minutes, all he did was make things appear and disappear without ever looking at anyone. And his finale, he produced a cloth and he changed it and it said, thank you. And then he looked up at the audience as he, as he looked at the cloth and he just caught the eyes of the people who were watching him. And it changed to tips, please. And he must have made, I don't know, 50, 60 bucks on one ride. I sat, I talked with him for a while, and that was his pitch. He knew his three hours in the afternoon, he could come in, he could go home, he'd get over a grand doing that, and he was a little worker. He had a great little show, and he made it for that place. And he taught me about um, working space, and um, I put together a little finger puppet show to go and play at the Metropolitan Opera House at intermission for the smokers and do a mini version of the opera they were singing. And in 10 minutes, I could make a complete show. And that's a pitch that nobody works because nobody created a show for there. Right. Everybody's fighting for a big show in one spot, but they don't have to fight for a big show in one spot. There's shows everywhere to be had. 
It was great talking to you, Rob. It's great talking to you, too. Yeah, you need to close it out by saying something beautiful and wonderful and memorable. In all of the years of street performing, I have seen some really, really fantastic performers. Some people who not only have the talent and the skill to entertain a crowd, but the passion for the art, the kindness behind it, the spirit to continue that on. And I met you, and I'd heard about you, and the greatness that a street performer can have, you really don't possess any of it. <laughs> Why? After all these years, I would think more of you. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. <laughs> talk to you soon, Baldy. All right, man. Talk to you later. Aloha. All right, Baldy. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This re-release Rob Torres box set episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org and huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for today's podcast came off Hokum W. Jeeb's Piano a la Carte CD. Special thanks to the estate of Hokum W. Jeeb's for allowing us to use his music and keep his memory alive. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take you just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop Magic Brian a line at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker Hoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And do check out the online content associated with this episode where you'll find additional images of Rob along with the cartoon version of the peeing bum story that was animated by fellow performer Alex Clark. And just before wrapping things up, one of the reoccurring themes in this episode was that there are shows to be had everywhere. But I'm not sure this is exactly what Rob meant. Hey, really quickly, can I take a pause? I'll call you back. I gotta run to the toilet. Be back in a bit. That was so beautiful! 
On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. No!